Please remain standing as we read our text this morning. Just three verses this morning that I want to chip away at as we start the second half of the book of Philippians. And oh, what a half. This will be good as we learn together. Philippians chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Finally, my brethren, more the idea of furthermore, because <laughs> he's not going to stop. Furthermore, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again to you is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and in the glory and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. You left us a manual. You inspired it. You breathed into it through the spirit of God. And we have the word of God now. That we gladly with warm hearts open up and ask the word, ask the truth to pierce our hearts, Lord. So we ask once again, Lord, that the word would do its work in our heart, Lord. Burn it upon us, press it on us, Lord. And may we live it out tomorrow, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a fascinating few verses here that we want to tackle this morning. Um, a set of verses that lead up to probably some of the most prominent verses known in the book of Philippians as he delves into what confidence in the flesh looks like and then how to rid yourself of any confidence in the flesh. But there's some preparatory verses here that I wanted to take time and look at this morning and try to get our minds around it and why these are very serious verses and verses that will help us throughout uh, our life and our week here. He says in verse 1 there, you'll notice, just in, by way of introduction, that he says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. To write the same things is no trouble. I want to tell you again. I entitled the sermon, Truth Worth Repeating. Truth Worth Repeating. The Bible expresses truth over and over and often the same truth is repeated to you over and over and over within the scriptures and there's a reason why there's a reason why God wants you to get this down he wants us to understand it he wants you to believe it he wants you to live it out and if you're like me I need it over and over and over I wish I could live out the truths of the word of God for his glory perfectly every day but I don't and so I need this to be repeated to us. Just think about your morning tomorrow. By the time you get going and get to wherever you need to be and the people that you are responsible for or work with, all kinds of pressures will have hit you. Pressures of the world that will want to rob your joy. That's going to come face, right in your face tomorrow morning. And Paul wants us to be reminded of truths that help you capture your joy tomorrow. Help you capture what Christ has done. Remind you of the gospel so that you can get through these things. Look at verse, chapter 1, verse 27 with me. Just go back because he's repeating truths over and over throughout this book. 
And one of them is this great truth of joy. But he knows where joy comes from. Comes from responding to the gospel. Look at verse 27. He says, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember when we looked at this. There's no other option for believers. We learned by God's grace and mercy and with joy to say, let the gospel dictate my behavior. That's what we want. Now, do we do that all the time? No, failed miserably this week at times. But that's our goal. Let our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that whether I come or go or remain or absent, he says, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. Notice this, in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I promise you, you have to remind yourself of these truths over and over and over and over. Because we will not stand firm sometimes. We will not stand in one spirit. We will not strive together. We're selfish by nature. And so he reminds us of these things. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents. He's going to show in verse 2, back in our text this morning, that there are some opponents out there, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, that you too from God, for it is to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. So he wants to remind us of truths, for us to get our mind around what God is telling us over and over and over. We have a term that we've tried to parent by through the years is not being a threatening, repeating parent. Do you know the threatening, repeating parent? You know, counts to 10 and starts over, counts again to 10, and the kid still goes, well, about the third time he gets to 30, then I better probably do something because he could blow his top. Threatening, repeating parents don't, don't accomplish anything. They just teach their children to say, hmm, he's not there yet. <laughs> They just gauge your explosion, how long the fuse is and how short it is that day. They're not behaving because they love the Lord Jesus or honor you. They just, they just wait till they can read you. But not Christians. We repeat truth because we hang on to truth. I have to hang on daily that Jesus loves me. <laughs> right? That despite battles of flesh and the battles of struggles that we all go through, whether physical or spiritual, we have a God who loves us. He doesn't fail you, though you may him. He doesn't leave you nor forsake you, though others may leave us and forsake us. He is not like man. And you and I come here on a Sunday morning to be reminded of truths. And I love that Paul starts this section out. I want to, it's not troublesome for me to tell you these truths again. And I think we need to hear them that way and say, Oh, Lord, I, I, I needed that. Sometimes people come up to me after a service and said, they'll say this. And I don't think they mean it as a... a as a criticism, they just say, I, I don't think I learned anything new today, but boy, the reminder was good. And I actually like that. I, I really like that statement. Because we come here to be reminded of truths, truths that we stake our eternal existence on, let alone what Monday school looks like. We stake 
our lives on these truths. And so Paul says, it's not hard for me to do this. Notice he says, it's a safeguard for you. It's a safeguard. Well, why? Well, did you get a gander at verse 3? We're going to look at that. There's vicious dogs, mutilators running around out there trying to destroy what you believe in. So we remind ourselves of the truth. That's why it's so important to be in church. You know, people go to a church and then they don't show up for weeks upon weeks and then they drop in and then they're out and they, they don't hear the truth. They're not a community group. They're not in the word of God their own. And, and, and there is Satan and all his authority and all his strength out there wanting to devour those. And Peter says he's like a roaring lion seeking to devour people. See, you and I need this. We need to be here. We need to hear the word of God. We need to hear repeated truths that we stand firm in and hold to. I think the first truth that he's reminding of us is my first point. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's interesting that he does this. He, he as I mentioned, as I read it, he says, finally, I think in the NAS, but other versions he uses, furthermore, we may translate it that way. The, the idea of the word is that he chooses here is that I, beyond that, be, uh, whatever's left, he's, he says, I'm not done. I got more to tell you. Um, but sometimes we translate that Greek word finally. Um, but he's not done here. He says, furthermore, look, brethren. So he identifies people. Now, this is the brethren used for um, all of Jews because he was a Jew himself. Um, this is for the church, brethren, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. I have some things I want to remind you of. And one is to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. So simple of a truth, isn't it? It isn't theologically profound, I guess, when we first look at it. But we are to rejoice in the Lord. I find myself rejoicing in things that are not of the Lord and they hurt after a while. You go, why did I get so wound up about that? It had no eternal bearing on anything. You know, if you follow a team, they're just going to break your heart, right? You know the Giants can't win this year. It's an odd year. Right? You know, just think about it. Things we get so wound up in have no eternal value at times. And that's just mere happiness. And there's a difference between joy and happiness. But here he says rejoice. This is the word for joy. Have great joy. Have joy, splendorous joy in the Lord. There, there's a prepositional phrase there. There's a position where our joy is in. It is in the Lord. It's not in other things. It is in the Lord. And if you're like me, you find yourself trying to be joyful or happiness in something. It'll leave you empty after a while. Because joy comes from the joy giver. It doesn't come from things. Happiness is such a difference in the Bible. Happiness is related upon the deriving, it, it, it comes from deriving from circumstances is the idea that we find the word happiness. But joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, that's something God gives. That's something God allows us to have when he saves us. He puts his own spirit within us and he gives us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Those beautiful fruits of the spirit. It's God who does those things. 
That joy that comes from God overcomes pain. It overcomes suffering. It overcomes trials and testing and fear and frustrations and even death. James says it this way, consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. See, joy in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, get you through things. And each one of you in some way is suffering today. Uh, Maybe at a lesser level than the person in the pew behind you or in front of you. But some way we suffer, don't we? Will God's joy, the God-given joy from the Spirit sustain you through this? Remember, prisoner Paul is writing this. Don't forget that. He's chained to guards in house arrest And he's writing about joy. It comes from the strangest places. And and we find joy in people that when we look at their circumstances, when we examine them, we would say there's no earthly reason for them to have joy. Already we know that the church has been under attack and people are using selfish ambition to proclaim Christ and they're running out and doing things because Paul is tied up in prison. And yet Paul over and over throughout this text speaks of joy. Let me just remind you, just briefly, look at chapter 1, 4, and 5. From prisoner Paul, he says, always offering prayer with what? Joy. In my every prayer for you. Remember, he writes to some of the churches that didn't respond to him, that didn't come and help. But that doesn't affect him. I'm always praying for you with joy in every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day into now. There's where joy is coming. I may be in prison, but you are participating with me in the gospel, the sharing of the greatest, best news the world could ever have, and I get joy because you're partnering with me. Look at verse 18. I just picked out a few verses here and there. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. No matter what the motives of these men who are out there presumably preaching the gospel, no matter what their motives are, Christ is being proclaimed, so I get joy when I hear that done. You know, sometimes we speculate on um, Christians. You know, we'll hear that, some singer or athlete is a Christian, we get kind of excited about that, don't we? And, and often we find out later that maybe they weren't who they said they were. But I think our initial reaction is, is, is probably noteworthy. And here's why. Because when you and I see somebody else who we least perceive may believe in the gospel, it brings joy to you, doesn't it? To go to work and come home and tell your wife or your husband and come home and say, hey, I think my co-worker's a Christian. You're not sure, but just the thought that maybe that person is a co-worker, doesn't it bring you joy? See, because you go, hey, that person knows Jesus and there's salvation there. And, and there's a hope that, that is amazing, isn't it? See, When we think of the gospel, when we think of Christ being proclaimed, there's joy that comes. Look at verse 25 and 26, a little further down. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. He's southern here. For your progress in the joy and faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus 
through his coming. So he goes, look, your progress of your faith is growing. You're not going to be hooked to me any Lord. You're going to be hooked to Christ. Your confidence is going to be in Jesus. And he gets great joy from the fact that people aren't just following Paul, they're following Christ. And I, and I remember when I preached on this, I said, I think I told you exactly, when you follow Christ, there's no greater joy to a preacher than to see the people that he preaches to love Jesus. There's no greater joy. And we um, revel in the fact when we hear, particularly our leadership, when we pray for the church and we hear of those who are growing in the faith, we find such joy in those things. And we rejoice. Look at chapter 2, 1 and 2. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ... There's where it all comes from. If there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection or, or compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. See, he loves joy. He's repeating this theme over and over, and we find that there's encouragement in Christ. 2, 17 and 18. Paul is questioning whether this is the end of his ministry. He is not sure. He says, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, poured out for Jesus Christ, this is the end of my life. It's just vaporized now. It's all over. It's all been for the worship of the Lord. Verse 17, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. If this is all that Lord had, if this is far, this is the end of the line for me. If you love the Lord, I'll rejoice. Then we'll get into three a little more, but skip to four. What an opening verse in chapter four. Therefore, my beloved brother, in whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. See, he looks at the church of Philippi who loves the Lord Jesus Christ as his joy and his crown. Joy comes from the Lord. That's why he says rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, and this will be a fun section as we learn from chapter 4. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So he's going to give the key to anxiety in chapter 4. And what's the opposite of anxiety? Joy. Right? And he's going to show that the joy giver can give you those things. And of course, there's many more within this book. But see, over and over, Paul is describing where true joy comes from. And he says it over and over. It's not a burden to me, he says. It is, it is not troublesome to me to repeat these things to you. It, isn't it a safeguard that someone comes up to you and puts their arm around you and says, Brother and sister, I'm praying for your joy? I think that's good. Be joyful. I, I've been reading through the Psalms in my morning reading, and David and the other Psalters have, have just spoke of joy so often. I, I just jot it down a few. Just listen. You can maybe mark these down, but just listen to some of the joy that we find in David. And uh, The Psalm I read this morning is a beautiful Psalm of his joy even in trials, but listen to how he speaks very, very often. And I just picked out uh, several of them here. You just listen to them. Psalms 9, 14. That I, may, that I may tell of your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. His joy comes in salvation. Psalms 13, 5. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice 
in your salvation. Psalms 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all who are upright in heart. Psalms 33, 1, sing for joy the Lord, O you righteous ones, praise is becoming to the upright. Psalms 33, 21, for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Psalms 35, 9, and my soul rejoices in the Lord and it shall exalt in his salvation. Psalms 40, verse 16, let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. And then David in the pit of his sin as he comes to Repentance says this in Psalms 51, 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. He absolutely knew where joy came from. Rejoice in the Lord. Not in all the other things. Let me show you one text. Jesus says some amazing things on this. Look at Luke chapter 10. I got way sidetracked in this passage today. I mean, this week, <laughs> uh, and it got me very excited, but I just want to share it with you. It's an interesting expression of joy from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know the Lord was joyful when he was in his ministry, but maybe not always the way you and I think it. But every once in a while, you find a passage where we see this joy bursting out of him for things that are happening. He is headed to the cross, and so the joy is a little different than probably what you and I express, but this is an amazing passage. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. He sent the 70 out by twos, right? And they've returned, and notice in verse 17, the 17 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. As if they didn't know that, right? They had seen the demons fall down in these people before them but they come back because they were not with the Lord in his physical presence they had gone out there and they had cast demons out and they said wow Lord it's amazing the demons just by your name are under your authority they're overwhelmed with it look at verse 18 and he said to them I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning the Lord's going Satan was a little bound there. He, wasn't, he didn't have the freedom. In verse 19, look at this. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. He, he's granting here, he's given foresight of apostolic authority that they're going to have. Now, this isn't given to everybody. This is given to a unique group of men that are going to be the apostles who are going to plant and be a part of the birth of the church here. Now look at what he says. 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. See, the crazy church today gets caught up in all this signs and gifts and wonders, and he says, you're fools. Don't get all wound up about that. The thing that you rejoice in is that your name's written in a book. My book. And I wrote it. I mean, you can see the joy coming out of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, they're coming back and they're going, wow, this was cool, man. We like said, get out. And he got out. And we did it in your name. And he's saying, look, look, this is great. 
I've given you authority, but hey, hey, there's something better to be rejoicing in. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, where it can never be erased, can never be taken. Praise God for that. Look at verse 21, just briefly. At, at the very time, look at this, this is Jesus. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus. And said, I praise you, O Father. He just breaks out in praise, in prayer. O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. They're the ones that want all the power, right? He's hidden it from them. And, and you've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. So let me tell you this. You go, man, I haven't done anything great for the Lord. Do you love him? Do you bend your knee to him? Will you submit to him in your life? Will you remember that he wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? You cause Jesus to rejoice when you do those things. It's a fascinating text. We could... Preach the cows come home on that one. We got to go back to our text. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, It doesn't trouble me to write to you repeatedly that you need to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. One last thought on this security. Take a person, and, we, and the world calls it this, what a half cup empty and a half cup full guy, right? Take the half cup empty guy or gal. I think you're susceptible. When, when we are negative, our eyes automatically come off of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be careful of this. Now, you may not be Mr. Bubbly or Mrs. Bubbly, and that's okay. That's just personalities the way God has made us. But when we genuinely think negative, we need to ask God to reverse that. See, he's telling us that this is a safeguard for us because if we're always thinking the worst... That exposes some things of our heart, doesn't it? I don't trust the Lord. I don't see the good in what God is doing. See, see where that goes? So Paul says, look, I want to tell you again and again and again, rejoice in the Lord. You need that. You need that, Scott. Rejoice in the Lord. You put hopes in other things, they fail you. Put your hope in the Lord. Okay? Verse 2. Watch out for anti-gospel people. That's what I think he's saying here. Watch out for anti-gospel people. And Paul says this all through his epistles. This is not an isolated instance. Remember, he says he's not troubled to say this again. He says, look, there are those who are anti-gospel. And he gives some very, very strong terms. Look at the verse. Beware of dogs. And it's not the barking kind with fur. Beware of evil workers. And beware of the false circumcision. So, when you read this verse, you go, wow, how does this work in the politically correct Christian world? Now, I'm not talking about the world in general. I'm actually talking about the Christian world. We are becoming much like the rest of the world where we feel like, well, we can never identify some other group that's, you know, 
anti-gospel or something. We don't want to point people out, Scott. That's not politically correct. But yet the Bible does it all the time. And Paul here loves these people in Philippi. I think we can understand that from the text. And he says, look, you better beware of these things. I've repeated it once. I'm going to repeat it again. And you're going to hear it from me. And every time I mention to you, there are people who hate the gospel. Now, they may not come out and put that on a banner. But their actions and their lives will show. And he is giving this safeguard for you and I. It's interesting. He uses um, uh, an imperative. This word, beware, or your Bible may say, watch out or look out for. Um, the word is blepo, so it's to, to see. But in an imperative, it has the idea that you must look out for these. It's a strong word. You must. You must watch out for this. And then he calls them dogs. Now, now, don't think of Fufu at home um, when you're thinking about this. <laughs> this is not the dogs that he is trying to put into the mind's eye of the church of Philippi. These are unclean, filthy animals in the first century. They roamed in packs, they pulled down, they tore and killed. This is, this is a different type of dog. I've seen these dogs. They're interesting. They're around the world still to this day. I'm talking physical rough roughs now. Um, they all have look like a dingo looking thing. And I remember going to India the first time and there's dogs and I like dogs. I've owned cattle dogs, hunting dogs. I mean, you name it, I've had dogs. And, and I, met, I went to reach one and a missionary grabbed my arm and says, do not touch those dogs. They are disease ridden. If they bit you, you ain't going to make it out of India. And he just looked like a normal dog laying on the sidewalk. He says, that dog tonight will join with another pack and they will run around and they will try to kill anything they can get a hold of tonight. And then I went to Russia and the same dog was there. It's the same dog. He looks the same. And he's kind of got that dingo look and they told me the same thing. And I went to the Philippines and they told me the same thing. And then Paul brings us back to us. These are false teachers. They are unclean. They will bite and devour. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous, ravenous wolves. Whoa. So they look like they're in the flock. Remember, don't, don't go, oh, well, that's... You know, we could point... Oh, we can see those people all the time. No, no, no. They're wearing sheep's clothing. They're camoed. They, they don't look like, you know, I'm walking with a sign coming into Grace Bible Church and says, I hate Jesus and I'm here to destroy your work here. That's not how they work. In fact, they believe what they're doing. Paul said this in Acts 20, verse 29, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Maybe you've heard me tell the story. We took care of some sheep one winter and some, what we called uh, i got to be careful here. Indian dogs, because they came off the Indian reservations, and they would run in packs at night. And then they'd go lay on the porch during the day, and they have a little collar on them. But at night, they would run. And they'll pull down calves, and they pull down sheep, and, and they don't actually eat them. They just pull, rip their throats out, and, they, and it's just fun to them. They just get exhilarated, and they just, your animals just die there. And so you got to take care of them. We can talk about that later. Um, but I watched that happen. And then as I began to pasture and I began to get into the church, every time we started a new church, it seemed as soon as we got that church up and going, some wolf would show up every time looking for 
fledglings looking for young lambs that they could take away. You begin to realize this is, this is serious. There are those who are against the gospel. And Paul calls them dogs. He writes strong language. There's so much in scripture about these guys that, that I mean, Jesus says, look, they whitewash the outside of tombs, but inside they're like dead bones. They find somebody, a proselyte, and they make them this, twice the son of hell as themselves. Matthew chapter 23, have you ever read? This is our Lord saying these things. And look, it's about this. It is when people distort the only way to God. When you find somebody who says, oh, hey, Jesus is great, but you need these seven steps. Or you do this plus Christ. Listen for the barking. That, that's what Paul's after. He knows how spiritually, and listen, eternally destructive that type of religion is. And you should identify that. They're in your life. They're in this town. They're, 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 they're in your family, possibly. People who say that, yes, Jesus, but you must not eat this and you must wear this and you can't go there and you, and you can't do this and, and they come with lists and it's awful scary. And look, human nature craves for lists. We like lists. Give me a list and I'll check it off and I'll be good. So Satan goes, oh, human nature likes lists. I'll give you a list. You got to be this and you got to have this done. And you should do that and this. Paul calls them dogs. He also calls them evil workers. Look out for evil workers. Paul knew this. Galatians chapter 1. He says, look, these are men who come in and distort the gospel. They're destructive. They are to be anathemed, he calls them. He says, who has bewitched you? You started in the spirit, and now you're going to finish in the flesh, he says. You, you, you were birthed in the spirit of God. He came and opened your heart and took out the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in. And now you're going to go, and I'm going to keep this list, and then I get to get to heaven? That your justification comes from Christ plus something? Oh, Paul goes wild in Galatians. I mean, he's shooting bad guys. Because he knows that eternal, eternal destiny rides on what they say for some. The last term he uses here quickly is false circumcision. It's an interesting word. It's the word called mutilators. Kind of headhunters. They're coming in to do something particularly so they can identify, hey, these people, because they did this act, are with us. No thought of Christ in it. Paul says they're mutilators. They deny the gospel. They deny the gospel of grace and they teach circumcision, the law of Moses. Today, we maybe not hear about this as much, but they'll come in and say, well, yes, Jesus died on the cross. However, you need to abstain from X, Y, Z. And they distort because human nature loves list. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.5. 3, 5, he says, holding to a form of godliness, although they deny its power, avoid such men. Avoid them. But the good news is, 
in Colossians 2 says we are the true circumcision of Jesus Christ. We have his fullness within us, chapter, chapter 2, verse 10 says, and it says that we are these ones who have had the sin cut away, the deadness cut away in our hearts. We're the true circumcision. And I think that's what Paul's after here. Is look, there's a false circumcision. There's mutilators out there. There's evil workers and there's, there's dogs. They, 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 they destroy the truth of the gospel. Or at least try, strive to. Watch out for them. I'm going to repeat this to you. Watch out for them. Watch out. Talk to our missionaries. They're fascinating. I, I go all the way down to Mindanao and the bottom island of Philippines. And you cannot believe the garbage that has got down there out of American Christianity. Wealth and prosperity gospel, name it, claim it. All this stuff has got into the jungle. And you go, where does stuff come from? Mutilators, dogs, evil workers. And here are these people, they're poor. They, they tell them, oh, if you just believe in Jesus and you do this, this, and this, boy, you're going to be like us. You're going to have Armani suits and you're going to have all the wealth you could ever be. They're dogs, they're evil workers, and they're mutilators. And we have to identify that. And moms and dads, you better get on top of this. Because your children are hearing religion. They're hearing truth and Christianity. But that's who Satan targets. Think about it. If you're in the world and you're just following the world's mind, he doesn't have to worry about you. You're a stray anyway. He comes after young. One night, those Dogs broke into a large barn. I had a massive barn that we were lambing out in the middle of the night. And those dogs knew exactly what to go for. They, they killed a few of the, the main mom lambs, but they went right for those little ones. And I got in there, and there's dead lambs laying everywhere. Just their throats ripped out, and they're just laying there. Dogs' tails wagging. They're just having, having a heyday. And I was young. I was a young pastor and, and I was just mad then, and I just started shooting things. Um, but I thought later, I thought, Lord, what a picture. You let that happen so I would know of what people do to your church. Paul said, look, I'm going to leave. And, and he doesn't say it's a question. He says, savage wolves will come in and devour the flock. It isn't a question whether it's going to happen or not. In fact, we know that even in Ephesus, it happened within his own leadership, it happened. And he had to send Timothy back to go to straighten out what an elder really is and what a deacon really is. They get devouring. Last thought. Stay close to gospelized people. I had to tell our secretaries and Michael, I said, do not change that word. I know it has a red line under it. But it's my word. And I think that's what he says in verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Notice the personal pronoun of plurality for we are. Gospelized people. They are the ones that are the true Circumcision. In fact, he changes word. He went from a word that we get the word mutilate from to a word that means inner cleansing. 
We're the true ones who have been inner cleansed. Our hearts have been cleansed. You want a fellowship with gospelized people. I'm not telling you not to be in the world. We are to be in the world. Jesus himself said that. But you're not to be of the world. And we are to be here with one another, in study with one another, in communication with one another, spending time with one another, because we are the ones that have had the sin cut away from our hearts. And it creates great joy. And I love this personal pronoun, this plural personal pronoun, for we are this list. Not, the, not verse 2. Verse 3, we are them. God has changed our lives. Notice that he also says that he reminds us to stay close to people who worship in spirit of God. Remember when he was with the woman at the well in John 4? She keeps trying to dodge the issue of her immoral life. And she keeps kind of running from one track to another. And Jesus kind of pins her down on this whole thing of worship. Because well, see, you Jews say we have to worship there. The Gentiles say we worship over here. And, and Jesus says, well, let me tell you what's going to happen. There's an hour coming, verse 23 of that chapter. And now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father is seeking. Oh, I love that verse. He's after true worshipers. Remember, Paul is saying, I'm repeating this to you. Are you a true worshiper? I have identified dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. They are not true worshipers of me. Are you a true worshiper? Do you exalt me? See, it's clear when you study man that he was created to worship. But God saved him from his fallen state and gave him his own spirit to allow him to worship properly and allows you to have great joy. One of the great statements of the Westminster Confection is this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's man's chief end. That's saved man's chief end is for us to worship God and to enjoy him forever. Is that what you're going to do? Is that what I'm going to do? Is that what we're, our goal in life? See, how do you spot these people? Where look at, they're lovers of God. They worship in the spirit of God, so they're lovers of God. They find joy and delight in him. They rest in him. You know, I, I know we struggle with these from time to time, and we have better weeks than we have of other weeks, but consistently we learn to trust the Lord and trust his sovereignty. Hmm, you've allowed this into my life, Lord, this difficulty. I trust you. You'll give me the strength through that. Sat with Lloyd this week, and we just talked about truths that Lloyd already knew. But he said, Pastor, thanks. It's just good to be reminded that God's sovereign. You know, 82-year-old man out riding his bicycle with 50-year-old hips. I don't know how that works, but just falls down and breaks his hip. He's a main servant in this church. He's, he's a tremendous man this church relies on. Why'd God let that happen? I don't know. And Lloyd doesn't know. But God's sovereign. And we said, God, we're going to trust you. And we're going to pray and we're going to put our, our faith in you that you're, you know something, you're doing something that we can't see. See, that's, that's the type of people he's talking about. This is who you want to be with. These are gospelized people. Wow, Jesus sent his son to die for me. He didn't just let this accident, like, oh, wasn't keeping track of Lloyd. He fell over. No, see, the gospel helps us understand that he loves us and he knows us. Notice, 
He says that we glory in Christ. So you can't talk about loving God without glorying in Christ. The idea here for the word glory is not doxa. It is a different word. It is the word for boasting in the Lord. See, gospel-like people boast in Christ. We go, hey, he's everything, man. When we hear things like the reformers wrote, um, that salvation comes through Christ alone, through faith alone, for grace alone, for his glory alone, through the word alone, we get excited about that, don't we? Because see, we're gospelized people. We love the gospel. And we love Christ and we boast in him. And so Paul says over and over, and he repeats Old Testament truth, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Ephesians reminds us that our salvation is by grace through Christ and faith alone, but it says that we would not boast in our own works. We boast in Christ. But Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone, through his word alone, for his glory alone. And then finally, he says, don't put any confidence in the flesh. Boy, this is one that we're going to see in the next coming weeks, Lord, uh, that, that I think will really expose things. We put way too much confidence in the flesh. And quickly, and I'll, I'll deal with this more in weeks to come, but here's the idea of putting confidence in your unredeemed humanness. There is an unredeemed humanness about us that will not be fully completed till we get to be the Lord, meaning we still battle and struggle with sin even though we're perfectly forgiven in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a battle that rages within us at times. And Paul says, don't put confidence in your own flesh. It will fail you. That means there is not a sola bootstraptus. And every time you and I try to pull ourselves up by our own boots, it doesn't go very well. Don't put confidence in your own flesh. It'll fail you. Jesus says this, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Paul told the Roman church in Romans 7, 18, for I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. Hmm. Don't trust your flesh. Trust Jesus. Romans 8, verse 4, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Gospelized people put confidence in Christ. Father, thank you for this teaser for the rest of this text, Lord. We realize that Paul knew it was important for us to hear truths over and over and over. Lord, my heart is warmed to the fact that just across the street, children are hearing these truths about the gospel. And Lord, if they stay in this church through adulthood, they'll hear it over and over and over. They'll hear it from Pastor Ron in youth groups. They'll hear it in their Sunday school classes. They'll hear it at home groups. They'll hear it in church. They'll hear it sung and preached. And Lord, we pray that you would secure our hearts with these truths, Lord. That Jesus Christ alone is our answer. And so, Father, we thank you that we can be reminded of that. We thank you that now we can take communion. We can put these truths and apply them to the text and to the remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ's death for us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 